Bible or uh, electronic device, we'll be looking at the Scripture with us this morning. We'll be in Luke chapter 18. We've been working our way through Luke, just kind of chapter by chapter. Um, now, since uh, for almost a year, we're just short of a year. We'll be finishing up um, Luke shortly. But as you're turning to, to Luke 18 or typing in Luke 18, just a, a little bit of recap. Um, the last couple weeks, um, as we've been in, in chapter 16 and 17 and the first portion of 18, right, we've been reminded that, that a couple things, that, that Jesus is calling us to live in light of the, the fact that He is coming back, right? That he is, His return is uncertain as to when it will come, but it is certain that it will come, and that it will be sudden, and that we need to live lives in light of the certainty of His return. And then last week we were reminded to persevere in prayer because of God's good and faithful character that we can anticipate and expect vindication and justice from Him. And so we persevere in prayer, and we do that humbly, not walking in expecting and demanding anything from God, but we go in humbly seeing Him rightly as holy and and knowing ourselves as those who are in need of rescue. And so this morning we're going to pick up at verse 18 of chapter 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All of these I've kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? And he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So we have this scene where a ruler has has come up, most likely a religious ruler is kind of how Luke uses this term, probably someone from the Sanhedrin, a religious body, coming up um, and asking Jesus a question that we actually saw um, in, in Luke chapter 10, right before the parable of the Good Samaritan. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It is a great question. It's a question that we folks have asked since this time. It's a question that should be bouncing around our hearts and minds. It's a question that we know folks around us are wondering and asking. But to some degree here, this, this ruler, right? if you remember in chapter 10, the question was asked by a lawyer, and he was seeking to justify himself. Here we see this ruler kind of probably showing a little bit of flattery. Hey, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Knowing that he had status, and that he had wealth, and that he had respect, was potentially looking for Jesus to commend him in front of the disciples and a crowd. Right, looking to be justified 
And Jesus quickly, right, just like he does, kind of turns things on their head, puts people on their heels a little bit, and, and draws our attention to some different things. And so in verse 19, he immediately says, why do you call me good? Right? Most people don't complain about being called good, right? And we say, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And what he's doing here is he's immediately lifting the question off of, um, hey, you're probably comparing yourself to the others in the room right now. You're probably looking at the disciples, you're probably looking at the crowd, and you're realizing that in this, this area, you've got some, some status. And you're probably wanting me to affirm that. But let's go ahead and take the, the eye line off of that and put it on God, the Holy One, the only one who is good. And so if we're going to make a comparison and a contrast here, we're going to lift it off of everyone around us and we're going to put it on you and God. So let's make sure that we are, we're talking about the right things here. And Jesus then just says, you know the commandments, like you're, you know these things. And he lists a portion of the Ten Commandments, not all of them. He, he primarily is listing here those that impact others, right? Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. These are all external, right? Like you can see, have you murdered someone, right? It's, it's pretty easy to know that, right? Right? Like you can, you can measure these. They're less internal. And the gentleman simply says, yeah, I have. I've actually done them since I was a child. We hear that with some arrogance, right? Because what we have is we, have, we know that Jesus has taken this from being a simply an external thing, and he has taken the law to go to our hearts, right? That he has said, it's not only don't murder, but it's don't hate, right? Don't have anger and wrath towards others, right? It's not only don't commit adultery, but it's don't lust after someone, right? He has taken it from external to internal and showing the whole person. But this gentleman here, in terms that the Judaism would have respected, right? We see Paul himself in Philippians 3, referred to himself as kind of impeccably righteous, like before the law, that he was blameless. That there was a belief that externally you could kind of keep these laws. And so the, the man is not lying. Jesus actually doesn't disagree that he hasn't committed murder, that he hasn't committed adultery, that he hasn't done these things. But what Jesus tells him is you're still lacking. Like you've been moral and yet you're still lacking. Remember last week as we saw the tax collector and the Pharisee praying, right? And the tax collector's beating his chest saying, God, I need mercy, I need help. And what is the Pharisee doing? He's saying, God, thank you that I'm great. Like he was trusting in his morality and judging himself, not compared to God, but compared to others. And so what we see here then is that Jesus sees this man's heart. And he makes an individual call here. And he says, listen, here's what I want you to do. Sell, in verse 22, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, and follow me. We have to note here, this is not a universal call. Okay? We're going to see even later in, in Luke coming up with Zacchaeus. The Zacchaeus will sell half, right? But not all. We see in Acts, when the church is gathering and sharing property, that we see them saying, hey, he sold a field and gave it. He didn't sell all of his property. Right? We see wealth in Job and in Abraham. We see those um, 
like Lydia in the New Testament. We see those who hosted the church. They had means and homes and money, and they used their wealth for the glory of God. Jesus here is not saying that what it looks like for every individual to follow Jesus is to sell everything that they have. He is asking this very clearly of this individual. It is an individual call here for him because he knew what gripped his heart. And we're going to come back to this idea here in just a moment. We're going to, we're going to table it for just a second. But I want you to imagine now Jesus standing before you saying, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he gives you one response, one thing, this is what I want for you. And that you say no. Not willing to do that. I don't see you as sufficient. I don't see you as the treasure that you are. I don't think that you're going to keep your word. Whatever it is, Jesus, no. Because that's what happens in this moment. That this ruler who has come looking to be commended is now listened to. And when he heard these things in verse 23, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. He tells Jesus no. And he goes. Like it is a heartbreaking scene here. And in this, Jesus knowing that there's a lot of thoughts and a lot of questions going on around those who are hearing this, and potentially the ruler is still somewhat in the vicinity, he says this. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, says, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And then he ups the ante. Verse 25, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He is meaning to shock the crowd and the audience here. He is meaning to shock the ruler. He's meaning to shock us. Listen, if you've heard this passage preached before, you may have heard someone talk about like a gate around the city of Jerusalem and that this was, it was difficult, but it was possible. That is not what is happening here. It's not. What Jesus is saying is it's impossible. Take a camel, take an eye of a needle, and thread it. You can't do it. It's impossible. And he wants us to hear that impossibility. He wants us to be shocked. He wanted the audience here to be shocked. Because we see then the response to that. Those who look at verse 26, and those who heard it said, Who can be saved? Like if it's impossible, God, what are we gonna what are we gonna do? He is tying this back to where we were last week. I want you to remember verse 14. I tell you, right, that the one who humbles himself, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. We're seeing an example of one who came forth to exalt himself, and he is being humbled. Right? That that is playing out here. And listen, verse 17. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, right, a dependent, needy child, shall not enter it. And so they've just heard Jesus say this, and now here he is telling this rich ruler, hey, this is what I expect, and if you don't, you're not getting it. And so why would they be so shocked to say, then who can be saved? Because there was an assumption, and listen, before we throw too many rocks, we have a similar assumption in our day and age that those who have wealth and status are divinely blessed. 
right? There's an assumption that those who have it must be because God is pleased with them. And now, now listen, we've, we know enough this side of the cross to know that there are folks who get their, their wealth and their status and their means by ill-gotten gains, right? We know that. But there's still a sense of, and God could take it away, so is he affirming? Is he okay with it? That they would have seen this righteous individual who had status, who had wealth, who had means, who comes and asks Jesus, they would have expected him to be commended and hear Jesus saying, you think he's blessed and he actually doesn't get in. It is a shocking, shocking statement and comment here. Now listen, this is not simply a New Testament idea. If you look in the Old Testament, there was a reminder to the people of God that wealth did not mean automatic blessing. I'm going to give you just a couple of these. Uh, This is Proverbs 28, verse 6. Better is a poor man who walks in integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. Right? Like we, we have these ideas already percolating in the Old Testament. A second, this is Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 28. Therefore they become great and rich. They have grown fat and sleek, and they know no bounds and deeds of evil. They judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless to make it prosper. They do not defend the rights of the needy. And he goes on, shall I not punish them for these things? We see this idea is threaded throughout Amos and Micah. That these things, right, that there was this, this assumption, but God was already like saying, hey, wait, wait a second, just because someone has means doesn't mean they're being blessed here. And so they go, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. That, that's how we know that he's not talking about some, it's kind of hard for a camel. It's impossible. Because he says, what is impossible for you is possible with God. He's already encouraging them. And we're going to come back to this in just a moment as well. Verse 28, Peter, God, Jesus, we've left our homes and followed you. He's like, you can almost go, okay, Peter's looking for some level of like, hey, we, we've done this. Like, we've done what you asked him to do. Because remember, they laid down their nets. They walked away from their boats. They walked away from their families and their jobs, right? Their extended families. And they have followed Jesus. And Jesus then encourages them and us. And he says this in verse 29. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, meaning in this life, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, a quick note here. When it says they've left wife, right, a spouse, they are not talking about going, hey, wife, I'm out. They're saying that they've chosen singleness. They've chosen to follow Jesus and have given up having a spouse, which then means they've given up children. He's not saying, hey, to follow me means like leave and shirk all of your earthly responsibilities and duties. That is not a call here. But he's saying if you have chosen to leave behind property and home, the ability for comfort and riches, if you've even walked away from your rights and relationships and opportunities that they would provide for the sake of the kingdom of God, you are seen by God. You are cared for and you will be taken care of in this life and in the life to come. Right, that He will not leave us, He will not forsake us, that He will meet 
those, those needs and those longings and those cravings that we have, He will meet us in those. So, church, this is a real warning to the well. This is not just a spiritualized thing. This is a real warning to the well. If you uh, are wondering, man, it seems like Luke hits on money a ton. He does. But remember, if we go back a year ago, as we started this, Luke is writing the, the Gospel of Luke that is in the sequel Acts for Theophilus, right? A wealthy patron who is wanting an orderly account of the life, the death, the resurrection, in the first generation of the church. He's writing to a wealthy individual. Right? He's reminding him, hey, Jesus had a lot to say about money. And it, it, it has an impact. Church, it means we need the repetition. Because whether you feel wealthy or not this morning, we are a wealthy nation. And we are wealthy individuals. And this, this morning, the same warning is for us. Hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't look around the room and start comparing who's got more, so I'm off the hook wealth-wise. He's going to turn our heart towards God. And He's going to warn that the hold that money has on our hearts. In, like, it, it doesn't matter in comparison to anyone else. It's what does it have on your heart this morning. How does it hold you? That there is a serious danger to our faith with resources and money. And like the rich young ruler here, we can be enslaved and utterly unaware of it. Because it's just become normal. This ruler had put trust in his status, had a false sense of security, had power to get what he wanted to do, what he wanted. And yet Scripture tells us this in Hebrews 3, that there's a deceitfulness to sin that we have an active enemy who is looking to deceive us, to, to numb us, to make us think everything's okay. Don't worry about it. It's okay. You've got it under control. Hebrews 11 reminds us that there is a pleasure that comes with sin. It's fleeting, but it's there. And so when people say, oh, sin is never any good, that's not true. It has no good eternal impact. It has no good permanent impact. But temporarily, it can be enjoyable and pleasurable, and you can feel like you have somehow skirted and beat the system. So there is a deceitfulness to it. There is fleeting pleasure to it. And then 1 Timothy chapter 6 tells us that there's an uncertainty with riches. Right? So that means for a while it can feel, it can feel secure. And we're being deceived. Because there's an uncertainty to it. There's a deceitfulness to it. And we have an enemy who's trying to convince us that all is okay. And so we can find ourselves numb to repetition of Scripture about money. We can find ourselves numb to what God is calling us to do. And so this rich ruler here had the opportunity to sell it all. And you can imagine him thinking of the loss of money and of position and of status and what will people think. But Jesus, what did he say? But you'll be rewarded in this life and in the life to come. And instead, he is choosing eternal, eternally to be impoverished, to have his wealth for just a mere number of years, and then have nothing, to be a part and an enemy of God forever. 
So we know that the New Testament ultimately calls Christians to do this, to work. We are called to work, to pay our own way, and then to hold the rest of it really loose. Right? To live beneath our means so that we can be on mission and give God the glory and be generous with our excess. To hold those things loosely, which means then we become freed to use the resources and the, and the gifts and the generosity and the things that we have to show where our treasure actually is. That it is not in bank accounts. That it is not in investment accounts. That it is not in property. That it is not in status symbols. It is that we have and we are glad to say, Jesus, where do you want it to go? And I'm glad to give it. Because you are my treasure. And what do you, what do you have for me? And I want to do that. And I want to follow. And I want to obey with it. So, it's a real warning for all of us. But it's also a reminder that Jesus saw this specific individual's idol what he was putting his hope, his trust, his worship, his faith in. And this morning, for some of us, money isn't it. That's not your idol. And what Jesus is reminding us through this story is that he does see your sin, your struggle, the thing that you're holding on to. He he knew what gripped this man's heart, even though he had all the moral language, all the moral obedience, and the ability to speak religiously. He knows what grips your heart this morning too. And there's a call for all of us to loosen the grip and to trust that Jesus is better than whatever has Whatever that is. Listen, the thing that has most gripped my heart um, is going to sound silly, but for the bulk of my growing up, it would, it, I, I, would not, I knew enough to speak morally and religiously like the rich ruler here. But if, you, if I was honest about what was internally going on in me, My idol was one of two things. Making sure people thought well of me and baseball. I I get it. It's silly for me. You're like, man, baseball's boring. We'll fight later, right? But, I mean, it's what I I, I wanted to invest all my time and all my energy and all my effort and everything into. And then the Lord woke me up from that. And he showed me his glory and his beauty and his goodness. And he didn't take baseball away, but he put it in its proper place. And the image here, right, is of a kid with some nasty sucker that's fallen in the ground. Right? But it's their sucker. And you're like, that's gross. Let me take that from you and hand you another sucker. But all the kid can imagine in that moment is no sucker. Right? Like, that's mine, and you're going to take it, and I want my sucker, and I'm not sure that the, if the exchange is actually going to take place. And so they hold on to it, this ugly, nasty, gross sucker, and say, nope, it's mine. And idols grip us that way. That we hold on to something, and we feel like there's pain and a ripping that will take place if it is removed, and we're not sure if the exchange is going to take place. And Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians. And as you think about listen, I, I get the silliness of thinking baseball could have owned me, but it did. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. 
for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I was blind. And and, and the things of the Lord were foolishness to me. And the things of this world seemed like life until I had eyes to see. He then tells us in in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And for many of you, you can look back in your life and go, I once thought it was just tradition or just religion or it was foolish, and then Jesus did something in me, and now it's the delight of my heart. I want nothing more than Jesus. That has happened in you. And yet, on this side of it, there are still things that want to creep in and become what grips my heart. It's no longer baseball. I enjoy it. I love it. But it doesn't grip my heart. It's not a threat any longer. But you know what is? Redeemer is. But it can grip my heart more than Jesus. My family can grip my heart more than Jesus. And so this passage this morning is a warning to the wealthy. It's a warning to all of us. But it's also a warning that Jesus sees what grips our heart. And He may make some ask and demands of us that are specific to you. Because He knows what has your heart. And if we look around and go, whoa, 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 wait a second. What are you going to ask of Dan? What are you going to ask of Brett? What are you going to ask of Rick? Like, What, what are you going to ask of those people? He's saying, no, no, no. What, that's what I'm asking of you. What grips your heart? What has you? I want it, want it to loosen so that you will see me and delight in me and taste and see that I am good. That's why we spent time in Ecclesiastes, right? Where we see right, that, that money and power and knowledge and work and pleasure, all of these things, right? We can chase after them. They are chasing the wind. We can feel it, but we can't ever grasp it. It is smoke. It is vapor. But Jesus is real. And he satisfies, and he is faithful, and he is good. Church, you are not a fool this morning to give up a lesser temporary pleasure for an eternal one. It is permanent, and it is better. What grips your heart? Obey the Spirit's leading and guiding even this morning in that. And so we have a real warning to the wealthy. We have heart idols, and Jesus sees us and reminds us of that. And then that should feel painful and impossible to give them up. Right? Jesus, like we hear the disciples go, then how can anyone be saved? It is impossible. Jesus says it. It's impossible for us to enter the kingdom on our own might, or our own merit, or our own ability. Paul will say it in Ephesians 2 you're dead in your sin, and dead people don't do things. It's impossible. Right? In Romans 3, it says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. So this is all of us are dead in our sin, and it is impossible for us to figure out how to enter the kingdom of God. And we see even this ruler here who is religious and moral and wealthy. Why was he asking Jesus this question? Maybe it was have have his faith commended, but it may have been that he was anxious and had some nagging thoughts that although externally you all think I'm awesome, I know what's in here. And I have some doubt that I have pleased the Holy One. We can't do it. It is impossible for us to make ourselves right 
with God. We are utterly needy. And thus we see verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That we are dependent on rescue, on care from Jesus. And so what does God do? Look at verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden for them, for they did not grasp what was said. He tells them what's going to happen. How is it going to be possible for us to know God? Because Jesus is going to the cross. And you can, when it says they didn't grasp it, it's not that they're, they're, not, they're not morons, right? They could not figure out how Jesus, how part of God's plan would be for him to die. They were struggling to grasp that, to see how this was all going to be a, a plan of victory. Like if you're if you are who you say you are, then you're just gonna you're gonna vindicate, you're gonna win, and you're gonna conquer. And he says, No, I'm gonna be mocked, and I'm gonna be spit on, and I'm gonna be shamefully treated, and he will die, but he will rise. And the reason that we can have peace with God, the reason that we can have hope that our salvation is possible is not because of our might, our merit, our knowledge, our attendance, our nationality, right? Because Jesus. That He has lived the life that you and I were meant to live. That He has died the death that we deserve, that our sin deserved to be mocked and humiliated and beaten and have the wrath of God poured out on. And then He beat it. He beat sin and Satan and death and He walked out of the grave. And He is alive today. And so when He comes to you and says, hey, you're holding on to that too tightly. I want it because I want to give you me. Jesus saying that. His Spirit ministering to you, crying your fingers off and saying, trust me, I'm better. Because He's beaten all that we have to fear. And He's inviting us into the possibility of salvation and of hope for all of eternity, in this life and in the next. It is not a tack on. You don't get to say, well, I'm, I'm just going to keep all the things of this life. I'm going to know the right information. What does He tell the rich ruler here? He tells him to act on it, right? To sell. And then he says what? Follow me. To follow him means we obey him and we submit to him. And that when our way and his ways butt heads, that we submit and we do what he's asked. We don't just get to tack Jesus on as fire insurance. We trust and delight and follow and treasure him in this life or we don't have him. And he doesn't have us. What has seemed impossible throughout Luke would be that Jesus could calm a storm, and yet He did. That He could touch a leper and heal them and not have leprosy. That He could raise the dead. That He could remove demons. That He could minister, right? In all of these ways, they have seemed impossible. And they are, except that He was God. He is God. And so when He says, I can rescue you, you can delight in me. I will take you back to the Father. Trust me and follow me. He means it. He can. And what that means for us this morning is that we can be generous with whatever God has given us. 
We can take risks. We can give freely because it doesn't have a hold on us. And so when he says, hey, I know this doesn't make sense in a worldly sense, but I want you to give this away, or I want you to do this, or I want you to go here, or I want... We're like, okay, Jesus, I trust you. Those things have no hold on me. There is freedom in that. There is hope in that. That he is enough. We have a good shepherd who also happens to be the God of the universe, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who sees you individually this morning, who knows what grips your heart and is asking you to unfurl your fingers from it. Trust that He is better, that He is the delight of your soul and that you can follow Him all of your days that lead right into eternity. That we want to live in light of these truths. Because you have access to a good dad who hears you, cares for you, and he will meet you. Church, would we be known for being that type of body who has put our treasure fully into him and lets the things of the world go strangely dead? Let's pray. Father, would we not run from hard passages and hard, uncomfortable truths? Lord, would we be honest and forthright and, and maybe just weak enough in this moment not to fight You, but to let Your Spirit maneuver in our hearts to reveal what really grips us, what really holds us? God, would we realize that when you show us our idols or our sin, Lord, it is painful, but in it, it is severe kindness because immediately there is grace that meets us in it when we trust and submit. Lord, would we let go of the dirty sucker in our lives to take the better thing, the infinitely better thing that is the treasure that is Jesus. We want more of you. Would you stir an affection for you? Would you lift our countenance to see more of you? God, would we let go of things that right now feel so utterly, adamantly important, but will look silly in comparison? God, break our hard heart. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. God, do what only you can do in these moments. We're asking, we're trusting. Jesus' name. Amen.